You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special vintage video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the vintage video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, listener Justin Aylett, that's right, Justin stuck it out for a second month, has asked us to review Jaws 2, released June 16th, 1978. Actually, Justin submitted five options for our listeners to choose from, and with 10 of the 19 votes, Jaws 2 was the clear winner. It was written by Carl Gottlieb and Howard Sackler, based on characters created by Peter Benchley, directed by Geno Schwark, and released by Universal Pictures. Author Peter Benchley had a lifelong fascination with sharks, stemming from a childhood spent fishing in Nantucket with his father. He found particular inspiration in a pair of true stories. In 1916, the Jersey Shore was home to a series of fatal shark attacks in the first couple weeks of July, until a team of men were hired to hunt and kill the shark. And, in 1964, fisherman Frank Mundus caught a two-ton great white shark off the shore of Montauk, New York. How does one catch a two-ton great white shark? I have no idea. Uh... Generally, it's done a lot like they did in the first Jaws, where you... Which is you shoot it with barrels until it tires itself out. Yeah, and then you just drag it into the harbor. Jesus. Yeah. After his publishers rejected a number of non-fiction pitches, Benchley mentioned a story he'd been kicking around about a great white relentlessly terrorizing a resort town. Over the course of getting chapters approved for publication, Benchley's editor, Thomas Congdon, recommended taking out a sex scene between the Brodies, Martin and Ellen, swapping out Martin for a marine biologist character Matt Hooper to inject a thread of infidelity to the story. This particular plot point was intended to be recycled into an early draft of Jaws 2 until Dreyfus officially turned down the part. Producers briefly considered recasting the Hooper character before coming to their senses. So they were going to have like a a bromance? Yeah, there's there's romance, there's mafia stuff, there's all kinds of weirdness in the book that doesn't make it. Yeah, I listened to the book earlier this week. And uh, those are the two main things that they took out for the feature film because they wanted to streamline everything. The final draft of Benchley's Jaws was delivered to the publisher in January of 73 and was published just over a year later in February of 74 as part of a carefully orchestrated campaign. But before that even, the novel got an incredible push from the publishers as word of mouth was expected to set sales on fire. Jaws got a favorable review in Cosmopolitan's lifestyle section, then edited by Helen Gurley Brown, wife of Universal Pictures producer David Brown. The Cosmo Review even ended with an endorsement of the book's inevitable film adaptation. I know Helen Gurley Brown mostly from her cameo in They Might Be Giants song, She Thinks She's Edith Head. Oh. She thinks she's Edith Head, or Helen Gurley Brown, or some other cultural figure we don't know a lot about. Universal clinched the rights in 1973 before the book was even published. David Brown, Richard D. Zucker, and eventual director Steven Spielberg bought 100 copies each upon its release to secure it a spot in the bestsellers list and to distribute to the mid-70s equivalent of Hollywood influencers to throw chum in the metaphorical waters of the box office. It seems like a little bit of collusion there. I think that happens with every bestseller list. 
but you know your your wife works for a, a famous magazine. Yeah, you're it's like, like hey, insider trading a little yeah. bit. Pimp out this book that that we already bought the rights to yeah. as a as a potential movie. <laughs> that is that does seem like cheating, but it worked. Spielberg's film adaptation of Jaws hit theaters in the summer of '75, kicking off a feeding frenzy considered by most to be the origin of the term blockbuster, better known now as an endangered video store brand. The decision of whether or not to sequelize Jaws was made in the first weeks of its release, and Brown and Zanuck quickly attached themselves since the sequel would happen with or without them, and they wanted an opportunity to steer it in a faithful direction. Or they wanted the money. Oh, that too, yeah. <laughs> oh, there's money too. <laughs> money. In October of 75, Spielberg made clear his disinterest in helming a sequel since he didn't see room for improvement. He also mentioned the plot pitched to him by producers, which involved Michael Brody and Quint's son teaming up to face off against a new shark. Howard Sackler, who had contributed uncredited to the first film, was brought on as a screenwriter for the second installment and initially turned in a prequel based on Robert Shaw's famous USS Indianapolis monologue, Sackler's best-known contribution to the first film. There seems to be some debate, though, as to the true authorship, with Spielberg crediting John Milius, unfairly, according to credited screenwriter Carl Gottlieb. Gottlieb makes the case that everyone took a whack at this monologue, including himself, regular Spielberg collaborators Zemeckis and Gale, and Milius, but Gottlieb has asserted that Sackler's draft was the foundation for a monologue edited to perfection by Shaw himself, a competent and accomplished writer in his own right. It's a shame that that version didn't come to fruition as a movie. It kind of did. Oh. For anyone listening to a spoilerific review of Jaws 2 without even having seen Jaws 1, the monologue tells the true story of the USS Indianapolis, which Shaw's character Quint was allegedly stationed aboard. It was struck in 1945 by a pair of Japanese torpedoes while on a secret mission delivering parts for the nuclear bombs that were eventually dropped on Japan, and the ship sank in 12 minutes killing most of the nearly 1,200-man crew. It remains the third greatest loss of life in the history of the U.S. Navy after the USS Arizona and Corregidor. Though, in the true story, fewer of the deaths were directly attributed to shark attacks. Many were, but not the 600 or so implied by Quint's story. I can't think of another example of a fictional film getting a non-fiction prequel, but Universal head Sid Sheinberg vetoed the pitch anyway, preferring to return to Amity and more of the actors and characters that the audiences had shown an affection for. If you'd like to see that Indianapolis movie, though, it kind of got made anyway as USS Indianapolis Men of Courage in 2016, starring Nicolas Cage, Thomas Jane, and Tom Sizemore. But I want it mostly want featuring sharks. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there were sharks in the real story. I, I haven't seen this film. Maybe they involve sharks somehow. I know, but I, I want the exaggerated version yes, that is the I Jaws agree. prequel. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get it a couple days after Spielberg dies. That someone will come out and say, hey, guess what? We're making this thing now. Like like yeah. all the SpongeBob spinoffs that came out the day after Hillenburg died. Sackler went to work on a more traditional sequel and recommended director John D. Hancock, who earlier this year took over directing duties on Wolfen from Michael Wadley. A month into production, the studio was very disappointed with the dailies, which envisioned the post-Jaws city of Amity as a foggy ghost town, where studio execs wanted a familiar lively beach town. The last straw came when Universal head Sid Sheinberg demanded an expansion of Lorraine Gary's role as Ellen Brody, insisting on a moment where she boards a boat herself to save her children. Did I mention Sid Sheinberg was married to Lorraine Gary? <laughs> <laughs> After the producers rejected Sheinberg's request, Hancock was officially cut loose from the project. The first film screenwriter Carl Gottlieb was brought back to inject levity and comic relief to the story to escape its current dreariness. 
With a set release date fast approaching, Scheinberg returned to Spielberg with a desperate plea to direct and must have offered a decent sum of money because instead of a rejection, Spielberg offered conditions. He wanted to do Sackler's original story of the Indianapolis and he wanted a year to prepare because he was still finishing Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Pushing the release date was a non-starter for Universal, who would also have to throw out everything Hancock had shot. Instead, they went hunting for another capable director. A suggestion was made to bring on co-directors Verna Fields and Joe Alves, the first film's editor and production designer respectively. Immediately after winning her Oscar for editing Jaws, Fields was promoted to Studio VP. In my work, I regularly visit the Verna Fields building on the Universal lot. In accordance with newly established rules, the DGA would not allow non-members to take over the position after a member's firing, so the search began anew. This particular rule is known, surprise surprise, as the Eastwood Rule, after <laughs> at the time recent chaos on the set of the outlaw Josie Wales, where star Clint Eastwood had director Philip Kaufman fired after a contentious working relationship and took over the director's chair himself. So it was allowed at the time. Yeah. And then after that, they were like, this isn't going to happen again. Well, and I feel like that's not necessarily a bad rule when it comes to something like a lead actor like that. Right. But I feel like it's kind of a shame in this case because, you know, giving a giving an accomplished editor, you know, especially a female editor, like right. the opportunity to then step up to direct would have been great. I think that's fair. I just think that for them to take the job away from a union director and give the highest budgeted universal picture at the time to two non-directors who were not members of the DGA. Yeah, but I'm just saying what you're telling me is that that is exactly what they wanted to do. That's what shy the crew of the wanted rule. to do. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so I'm just saying that rule kind of sucks sometimes yeah, because maybe. I think it's going to prevent certain people uh, who don't necessarily have all of the opportunities in the world to become a director. It would be interesting doing it. to see their version of the film with a with a AI or something. Several established directors, Otto Preminger, John Frankenheimer, and even John Badham were all briefly considered to take over, but all would require prep time they didn't have. Joe Alves had worked previously on NBC's anthology horror series Night Gallery with Spielberg and recalled another young director by the name of Geno Schwark with a few smaller but acclaimed credits to his name. When he was approached with the tight timetable, Schwark immediately pitched an action set piece with a water skier that they could begin shooting immediately while they worked out the script to the studio's liking. This is pretty much exactly what everyone wanted to hear, and Schwark was officially offered the job. It was also Schwark's idea to give Deputy Hendricks a larger role in the sequel, after the first draft had dropped the character completely. The shark prop known famously as Bruce on the first set was known uncreatively here as Bruce II, or sometimes Bruceette, since the novelization released after the film indicated that this shark is the pregnant wife of the original beast. <laughs> That's what they were implying. No, really? Well, technically speaking, female sharks are much bigger than male sharks, so that would make sense if this is a much bigger shark, that it would be a female, and then conceivably that it would be pregnant and looking for revenge. Yeah, I think that's the part that gets me yeah. the most. <laughs> the first film shot in Martha's Vineyard, but as the sequel's production expanded in scope, the island grew weary of hosting the cast and crew, even making up a batch of Universal Go Home shirts, and second unit locations in Florida were employed for most of the beach scenes. Gottlieb livened up the town by introducing a sort of cruising culture on the water where kids race sailboats like the hot rods of American graffiti. Well, that's better than the cruising culture I thought you were going to say. Yeah. No, it's all leather. Yeah, so we're, what, a lot of what, hankies. Yeah, I was going to say, what color handkerchief does what? We're not closing the hanky shop. 
<laughs> this is when the hanky shop makes all their money for the year. The teen actors in the film spent four weeks training on sailboats so they could operate their own crafts in the film. And I think it pays off because it's kind of neat that they're actually doing the yeah. real work of yeah. these these boats. They, they actually crashed them into each other, too. Wow. Pretty good, guys. <laughs> the Cable Junction Island seen in the film was actually a floating prop which occasionally broke free of its moorings and made a run for open ocean before getting towed back into place. Roy Scheider had zero interest in reprising the role of Sheriff Brody, but was obligated to appear in two more films for the studio, and only agreed when Universal said they would count Jaws 2 as both of the remaining films on his contract. <laughs> he had just dropped out of Deer Hunter over creative differences, and so deeply regretted agreeing to Jaws 2 that he destroyed his hotel room in an effort to propel rumors that he was going insane and needed to be forcibly dropped from the cast. Universal kept him around anyway, <laughs> even after tense arguments with director Schwark in front of extras. Scheider felt largely ignored as Schwark tended to other members of the cast and background. Attempts made by other crew to get the men to settle their differences eventually led to a physical altercation on set. They wrote each other crappy apologies and returned to work, but Schwark has said in the years since that Scheider was just suffering from an ego trip and needed more coddling than Schwark had time for. In Benchley's original novel, Hooper does not make it out alive. Because he survives the film version, he was of course expected to return in the second film, as I mentioned before, in the form of an affair with Ellen Brody. Wow. Okay. It's weird, right? <laughs> no, um, I thought the infidelity was Hooper and Roy Scheider. Oh, interesting. That's, what, that's why you said it was a bromance. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's what I thought you were implying, that the Hooper character was added and in the Oh, infidelity. did you say bro? Yeah. I thought you said ro. No, I said bro. <laughs> no. I, I was like, that's really progressive. That's what I was like, and you're just like, yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I totally misheard you then. No, that was not what... Yeah, now I'm really disappointed. <laughs> yeah, in, in the novel, she she has sex with hooper at like a seedy hotel in town and the whole rest of the movie brody is suspicious of this character this young oceanographer guy who came into town who he thinks was very flirty with his wife at a dinner party well i'm glad they didn't go with that plot line yeah i prefer the one where his wife just kicks ass and tries to take things into her own hands yeah the affair was rewritten to be between ellen and her boss and then largely removed from the final product I don't even know for sure if it was supposed to be an affair the way the film plays out. It feels more like, um, do you guys remember the infidelity plot of Look Who's Talking To, I think, where John Travolta is flying this woman around oh, and she's and being she's very flirty in, with she's him. she's interested in him and he just But he thinks it's innocent it. and he doesn't yeah. know. And so I think it was supposed to feel like that where Peterson is like kind of obsessed with her and crossing lines, but she's letting it go because she's trying to be professional and do her job. And it's bothering Roy Scheider. Yeah. And so I think that's all it was supposed to be here. But even that is so toned down. I think that's even look who's talking now. Is it now? I think Maybe so. Maybe it is. It is because it has the dogs in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I don't know why I picked that of all. <laughs> scenes. It's just the first one that came to my mind where it was like an unwanted affair. I, honestly, not a lot is coming to mind of other movies like that. It was a good example, Sadie. That's <laughs> okay, what I'm saying. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Upon its release, Jaws 2 became the highest grossing sequel of all time, eclipsed soon after by Rocky II the following year. On a budget of $30 million, more than three times the budget of Jaws 1, and Universal's biggest at the time, it went on to take in over $200 million over several releases worldwide. It's also reportedly the first domestic sequel to employ Arabic numerals in the title. Before Jaws 2, everything was Roman numerals or just different titles. Huh. It's the first movie that was a sequel to use, to use the number two mm. instead of Roman numerals. 
That's interesting. Well, it's what's really interesting to me is, you know, like I consider the two to be like less sophisticated, I yeah. guess. I honestly think the reason they chose to do the Arabic numeral is because of the hook on the two, how it looks like the hook on the J. Like oh. I think it was entirely stylistic, the oh. choice, but then it became a thing that people started to do after that. But with the Roman numerals, you could have had them be like two sharp teeth. I guess that would be a vampire, vampire shark. Stuff, yeah. <laughs> oh man, guys, I have an idea. Vampire sharks. I guarantee you, there's <laughs> thirty vampire sharks shooting today. Or because there's two, because there's one in the womb. But don't sharks like lay eggs? They keep the shark babies inside of them until they are ready to be birthed. I think it depends on the species. Mm. Well, great whites keep the babies they, they, inside they of them for, birth. for up to 18 months. Okay. From did, my they, research. Well, that's important. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But is the two because there's two sharks? There's more than two oh. in the novelization. They're like Russian nesting sharks. <laughs> yeah. The baby is also pregnant. It's like a tribble. Is that, is that how tribbles work? Yeah. <laughs> So Doc McCoy says they're born pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. No wonder, no wonder they multiply so quickly. Internationally, Jaws was beaten to the Arabic numeral punch 21 years earlier by Hammer film Quatermass 2. Did you say it was the first movie to have that, and then you said it's not the first movie to have that? It's the first domestic film to have that. Internationally, it was beaten to the punch by Quatermass 2. In the French market, Jaws was retitled Les Dents de la Mer or The Teeth of the Sea, so the sequel's title became Les Dents de la Mer 2, or The Teeth of the Sea 2, which is unfortunately phonetically indistinguishable from the translation for The Teeth of the Shit. <laughs> Jaws 2 also has one of the top three best-known and most parodied taglines of all time, probably the most famous for a sequel. Now, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water... In my head, the top tagline would be, in space no one can hear yeah. you scream, and then an adventure 65 million years in the making. Do you guys recall the last time we've heard the Jaws 2 tagline parodied? Uh, airplane? No. Mm. But there is some Jaws parody in that trailer. Yeah. I think even the film starts with the tale of the plane right, going through the, the clouds. Right, and the music. History of the World Part 1? No. Let's try to think of parody films. It's not a parody film. Oh. It's a horror film. It's a horror film that's a ripoff of Jaws that uses a variation yeah. of the Jaws 2 tagline. They just added some words to the end of the tagline. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, you can't get to it. Blood Beach. Blood Beach. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, you can't get to it. Do you guys recall the last couple times we saw Jaws with an Arabic numeral after it that was not a real uh -oh. movie? <laughs> it was an un unproduced so far sequel. Uh, I guess we haven't escape had Escape from New York. No, no, something something else futuristic though. Something um, futuristic. What had a future Jaws sequel advertised in it? Technically, we've only covered one on the show, but we mm -hmm. discussed another. Does Richard know? I don't know? I'm trying to think of like Galaxina. No. Give me a clue. It's a billboard in the background of an animated film. Uh, heavy metal. Heavy metal. Mm. And then we discussed how it's also in Zemeckis's. Back to the Future Part 2. Right. With the number, I think. Yeah, it's 19, numerical. And it's like 19, I think. Jaws 2 was preceded by Jaws ripoffs, Orca, Piranha, and Tentacles, and later Jaws parody slash ripoffs included Killer Fish, Barracuda, Tintotera, the Mexican Jaws, Piranha 2, The Last Shark, 
Great White, which we discussed in our Kill and Kill Again review, Up from the Depths, Humanoids from the Deep, Island of the Fishmen, Devilfish, and Mako the Jaws of Death. You will also occasionally see various non-aquatic Jaws ripoffs, like Grizzly, that just take the monster out of the water and call it a day. What about Alligator? Alligator's another yeah. one. Yeah, absolutely. And I have, as you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for Orca. Right. Which also deals with a pregnant revenge story. Yeah, I just caught that one yesterday and uh whew, yeah you did not tell me how terrible it was <laughs> you told me how hard to watch the first scene is but the rest of the movie was pretty hard to watch too <laughs> jaws 2 was followed by two and a half ish more sequels and a popular attraction at the universal studios park but we'll talk through the sequels at the end we open with underwater footage following a pair of divers en route to the shipwreck of the orca the boat from the first film, sunken in its climax. They locate the ship and pry their way inside with cameras. They pose for photos with their find until they are interrupted by a great white shark. They drop their camera in the subsequent attack, but it continues taking pictures as the water mixes with blood. The POV moves back above the waves to show the dive boat waiting empty for men who will never return. We cut back to the city of Amity as Sheriff Brody, now Chief of Police Brody. I don't know if he was Chief of Police before. But... Yeah, he was Chief of Police. Okay. Chief Brody, played by Roy Scheider, reprising his role from the first film, against his will, pulls a truck onto a ferry. Brody is impatient with the ride, either because of a surviving fear of the open water or because he's late, maybe both. As soon as the ferry docks across the water, the police truck skids out onto the road. He continues driving long beach roads as the sky gets darker and darker. He arrives at a hotel's grand opening late for a celebration. The Amity High School Marching Band, played by the Gulf Breeze High School Marching Band, plays downtown as a crowd gathers around the hotel pool. Brody locates his wife in the crowd and joins her. She's annoyed he couldn't be here on time because she played a big part in what's being celebrated here, and she asks him to pretend he's been here the whole time. How do I do that? Just look forward. Insanely, the mayor from the first film, played by Murray Hamilton, is still in office and addresses the crowd from a podium. Due to a last-minute cancellation by their babysitter, the Brody's kids, Sean and Michael, are also here. In the first film, at the time of filming, Michael is 11 and Sean is 6. This is the actor's ages at the time of filming. By the second film, three years later, Michael is being played by a 19-year-old and Sean is now 11. By the third film, five years later, Mike actor Dennis Quaid is suddenly 28. And Sean's actor is 21, so these kids have, like, jack disease. <laughs> Miraculously, though, in the four years from the third to the fourth film, Mike's actor is six years younger than Dennis Quaid. <laughs> yeah, because it's Lance, Lance Guest, right? Right. The mayor invites Miss Amity, Tina Wilcox, to perform the official ribbon cutting, and Sheriff Brody gives her a quick catcall whistle to his wife's feigned amusement. The mayor announces that Len Peterson has built this hotel and also donated a fund to the community as a gesture of goodwill. Miss Amity cuts the ribbon and balloons fall from the ceiling before everyone is excused to refreshments at the after party to the tune of Girl from Ipanema from the marching band. The Brodies and Peterson compliment the mayor on a successful speech, and the mayor introduces his son, the teenaged Larry Jr. As they part ways, Peterson asks Mrs. Brody to stay on top of the guest's drink orders and make sure everything is going smoothly, but he's weirdly touchy-feely with the sheriff's wife. Yeah. I guess she's here as an event planner, and she dutifully steps away to address his commands. Yes, sir. Fantastic lady. Don't know what I would do without her. Really? Neither do I. What happened next was bizarre. In the film, it's just a simple scene transition, but some part of the audio woke up our Google Home device, and it answered a question it thought it heard in the dialogue. Hugh Hefner was 91 years old when he died in 2017. <laughs> 
No. <laughs> when did Hugh die? Is that is that what what it thought it said? I don't know what it thought, but so, so something in the dialogue sounds enough like how old was Hugh Hefner or something like that. Yeah, but it also sounded like you said goo. How old is Hugh Hefner? Yeah, it had to say the magic words. I'm not going to say them here because I don't want to set off people's Google's oh, at home. Alexa, how old is Hugh Stop. Hefner? <laughs> hey, sorry, do how it. Old is- Stop, guys. We're annoying oh, people. Look, your phone went up. <laughs> Did it light up? Yes. Hoisted by my own petard. <laughs> at the reception, Michael is making a cup of fruit punch and asking a friend, Brooke, how old her cousin is. Apparently, they're trying to set him up on a blind date, and he's nervous about it. A curly-haired comic relief character named Andy steps in to make a blind date joke. Oh, they're okay if they got little white canes and tin cups. That's awful. Andy knows Mrs. Brody planned this party and asks if she made this punch specifically. No. Good, it's terrible. And he just dumps his cup into the bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. Out on the patio, a pair of nerdy guys, Doug, played by Keith Gordon, and Timmy, discuss their approach to picking up ladies. Doug has his eyes on Miss Amity. Ed's girlfriend. You're crazy. The Brodies are slow dancing and make plans to sneak away for sex. Early the next morning, it's raining on the empty dive boat in the harbor. Beneath the surface of the water, we can see presumably the same great white swim by, and its dorsal fin breaks the surface to the tune of John Williams' famous Jaws theme. Back on the docks, Sheriff Brody approaches Deputy Hendricks getting his boat started. A man calls to them from a boat on the water to announce the discovery of the abandoned diving vessel. Even though we just established that Hendricks is off-duty, Brody asks him to investigate since apparently Brody can't operate even a small boat. On another dock, Sean begs his older brother Michael to take him out on the water with friends today. Mike repeatedly shuts the idea down, but a female friend of his invites Sean to at least help her get her boat ready. She seems disappointed that Michael is so mean to his brother. Ooh, big brothers. Michael is visited again by Brooke, who reminds him that she wants to introduce him to her cousin Jackie. Michael is hesitant to agree to the plan until Jackie shows up in the distance, and I guess she's cuter than Michael expected. She seems to catch the eye of several teen boys preparing their boats for the day, but Larry Jr. is predictably shitty when he sees her. She's got tits like a sparrow. Do you have to talk like that? What are you, my mother? Were you under the jib? Apparently the actor improvised this line on set and felt terrible about it for a long time afterward. Actress Donna Wilkes has long since forgiven the comment. He improvised the insult? The tits like a sparrow line, yeah. We get a bit of jaunty sailing music from John Williams, and I honestly think he's the only person who outdid himself for the second film. Because I really love this score the whole way throughout. Yeah, I, I, I really like the kids' sailing score. Yeah. I especially like how it's very fun and like celebratory, but then suddenly like creepy for a second and then hops right back into the fun music. We cut to a montage of hijinks on the water as people toss water balloons and full buckets at each other. Nerdy guy Doug is splashed with a balloon that soaks the book he's reading, Arthur C. Clarke's Glide Path, and he tosses it away, annoyed. When Brody gets into his office, it's crowded with angry locals arguing over each other. One of the people here is angry because Grace Kinney, who lives across the street from their home, dances in a towel where his son can see it. He wants the chief of police to punish a girl for dancing in her own bedroom because his son is a pervert. Deputy Hendricks shows up holding a diver camera, and Brody drags him into his office to help him identify a 908. So when he holds up the diver camera, I was like, has the diver camera been down there for 50 years? No, it's the one that the divers dropped yeah, when they were when but, they found the orca. But when you see when it's dropped, 
it's like clear plastic and clean. This thing looks like it's made of bronze. Like it's just all corroded and green and like maybe that is weird. Maybe it got swallowed and spit up. Yeah, maybe. I don't know, but I was like that, that I thought I was that's why I was like has it been like weeks or something? Has, yeah. has no, a lot I think of this is supposed to be like by? the same day or pretty close. What the hell's a 908? I never heard of a 908. 908 means get me out of there. I looked into it, and according to Benchley's novel, Amity is meant to be a small beach town off Long Island, New York. From what I could find, all the police codes in New York start with 10s, so 908 doesn't make sense at all. The deputy tells him the dive boat has been completely abandoned by a couple guys from Rhode Island and looks to be worth $100,000. You know, if I had a $100,000 boat, I wouldn't leave it in the channel. If you had a $100,000 boat, there'd be an investigation. Very funny. Out on the water, all the kids are still having fun. Mike Brody is hanging from a sail on a seat, and his buddies are repeatedly dipping him ass first into the water. Every time he crashes through the surface, we get peaks from beneath the waves. We hear some familiar tones in the score as a shark POV approaches the splashing. Just as the camera reaches Mike's legs, he's yanked out of the water by a gust of wind in the sail above him. The shark's dorsal fin breaks the surface, but nobody seems to notice. We cut elsewhere as a girl water skis off the coast. On the shore nearby, a couple, Ed and Tina, aka Miss Amity, are making out in the grass when she hears the water skier pass by. She waves to her friend and expresses an interest in doing the same. Come on, we can use my uncle's boat. Let's do it next week, all right? Yeah, with you, everything is next week. <laughs> I love how annoyed she is. Yeah. When we cut back to the water skier, we can see a dorsal fin in pursuit. In the shark's POV, we're blasting through the skier's wake until it gnashes at her legs and she loses grip of the handle, falling backward into the water. It takes her friend driving the boat a moment to notice she's fallen, and she loops back around to collect her friend in the water. Instead, she finds just a ski. When she fishes it from the waves, she can see it's broken in places, and she calls out to her missing friend with concern. As she leans out over the edge on one side, the shark crashes full speed into the boat on the opposite side, and she nearly falls out of it. She picks up a huge gas tank, intending to pour some on the shark, but instead pours it mostly on the boat and herself. Yeah. <laughs> she takes out her flare gun to scare the shark away by firing it, which quickly sets the fumes ablaze, and the fire takes little time to ignite the gas canisters. She successfully burns the shark, but the entire boat is rocked with a massive explosion. An older woman on the porch of a nearby beach house stands horrified by the sight of it. Ed and Tina are similarly disturbed. Later we see the deputy fishing through the wreckage, but he can't find anything. Chief Brody tells him to start dragging the water in search of human remains, since there are two people reported missing after the explosion. The grandmother tells Chief Brody that she has no idea what could have caused the explosion, but it should be obvious to anyone who knows there's gas cans and a flare gun on board. Yeah. That's clearly what happened. The question is why? <laughs> mm-hmm. Brody excuses the witnesses from the scene and stares out to sea with perhaps an inkling of a suspicion of what's happening. I mean, really, are you thinking the shark exploded a boat at this Shark point? explosion. Yeah. <laughs> Hours later, the police search of the location remains empty-handed. Suddenly, their hook catches on something heavy, and as they reel it in, they realize they've hooked the island's power line and release it back into the water. The next morning, the Brody brothers argue over what cereal they want for breakfast. I want fruit loops. Eat Cheerios. You eat Cheerios. I want Fruit Loops. You eat Cheerios. At first glance, this might seem like product placement for Cheerios, but the kid clearly hates them, so it probably works better for Fruit Loops. <laughs> Sheriff Brody asks his sons their plans for the day, and Michael says he's going sailing again. Brody would rather he got a job. As Michael leaves, his father reminds him to be careful after all the accidents they've been having. 
We cut out to the lighthouse as Ed chases Tina around a beach. Their playful chase ends in horror as they stumble across the beached corpse of a half-eaten orca. Do you guys recall the last time we saw people discover an orca? Was it on a beach? No, it was deep underwater. Oh, earlier in this film? Earlier in this film. (laughs) When they discovered the wreckage of the orca from the first film. Between Jaws 1 and 2, Paramount released a Jaws ripoff called Orca, starring Tarzan co-stars Bo Derek and Richard Harris, alongside Charlotte Rampling and Keenan Wynn. In the opening scene, the orca kills a great white, a clear effort to one-up Jaws, so this moment feels a lot like Jaws producers evening the score. Although I wish that they had included a specific detail, which is at the beginning of that film, in an effort to kill the orca, Richard Harris clips its dorsal fin. Yeah with a spear gun or something at the beginning. And I wish that this orca had had the same little clip Mark through it. its oh, that fin. Because then it would have been like, this is literally that whale. <laughs> Sheriff Brody has been called to the scene and brings along an expert biologist, Elkins, because of the reported size of the bites. When Brody gets his eyes on the bite marks himself, he does some calculations to presume the length of the shark responsible. He's decided in advance that it's a shark. You know, the guy fights one shark and he thinks he's an expert. Right. Yeah. You better check the bite radius. The what? Shape of the mouth. Whale's mouth? Shark's mouth. What shark? The shark that did this. Brody relays to her his specific suspicion that a great white did this, and a huge one at that. When she asks why he thinks there would ever be a great white in these waters, he bizarrely avoids mentioning that he blew one up here a couple years ago. Yeah. (laughs) He's just like... Well, clearly it got bit by something. That's why it was definitely a great white. Out of nowhere, Brody mentions that sharks are attracted to blood, and the marine biologist adds an attraction to sound. Sound? Sound. Like sonar or radar, they hone in on unusual sounds, irregular sounds, almost any rhythmic low-frequency vibration. She points out that this attack didn't have to happen locally, and the currents could easily have dumped the killer whale here long after the attack. As he leaves the crime scene, Brody informs Michael that they're coming home together and Michael's buddies can take his boat home because he doesn't care if they get eaten. Mike is pissed because this means he has to cancel his blind date, but Dad assures him she'll understand. The expert seems to concur with Brody's conclusion that this damage was done either by a great white or another orca, but then he takes things a step too far by suggesting that sharks can communicate like dolphins and if one was killed here, that this one might have come as a response. Sharks don't take things personally, Mr. Brody. I, I would have said it would be more like like a territory thing. Like the the shark that was like claiming ownership of this territory is now gone, leaving... So this one can move in? Correct. Yeah. That's how I would have looked at but it. But if it is the bride of Frankenstein, so to speak, mm-hmm. then maybe it's here because like it detected some scent of that other shark here in the ocean but to suggest From that it years like, ago yeah it just got like oh you know what i didn't have a signal but i finally got your text <laughs> how that long you're attacking has this Amity. shark been pregnant <laughs> <laughs> well we'll get into that <laughs> great whites can be pregnant for it's thought up to 18 months so this should be beyond the realm of possibility I, but like also but some if- sharks can be pregnant up to three years and they don't know for sure for great whites because yeah. They've never been able to track one for the full length of a gestation okay. period. Well, you know what? If I was pregnant for three years, I would also be grumpy and ready to kill everyone in sight. Yes. <laughs> Michael tries again to ask his dad for permission to sail, but Brody cuts him off with a curt no, and Michael apologizes to his friends for leaving early. Chief Brody heads directly to City Hall to meet with Mayor Vaughn and suggest again that Amity has a shark problem. Are you serious? You bet I'm serious. 
Even after Brody's suspicions were proven right a couple summers back, the mayor is convinced without evidence that Brody is being paranoid again. I think I would have liked it more if the mayor was on his side from the beginning and slowly became convinced that Sheriff Brody was traumatized by the previous encounter. It would make more sense to him rejecting the theory out of hand when Brody has only ever been right about this. Yeah. Or if he had been the guy who cried shark for the last three years and this oh, was just sure. like one of like, yeah, you tell us every week there's a shark. He's like, that no, actually no, would have sold it. This time there's evidence. Yeah. If yeah. it turned out he's been doing this every summer since he blew up the last yeah. one, that would have been great. Well, it seems like some, that some of that is already true because he clearly had a shark tower built. Right. He didn't have it built within the last few days. It's been there on the beach. That's true. We have a lot of deaths in these waters that never turn up. Are they all shark victims? Maybe they are. Oh, bullshit. Bullshit! We learn here that it was actually the mayor's call to send in Elkins, the marine biologist, because he wanted to prove without a doubt that this was not the work of a shark, but she admitted at the scene that she couldn't exclude that possibility. Brody finds himself in the familiar position of being the only person who knows or cares about a string of shark attacks in the area. Martin, don't press it this time. What? Fuck you. Why? Why not? The fact that Brody doesn't go directly to the press with his theory is all the proof I need that he's the bad guy this time around. In the previous film, he got a little boy, Alex Kintner, killed because he kept his suspicions to himself. He has clearly learned nothing. Sometime later, we see Brody patrolling the beach in his truck when he notices a long wooden beam in the surf. He steps out of the vehicle, and we can see that it's a large chunk of the missing water skier's boat. He doesn't even have the heart to wade out into the water at first. He's so scared of the ocean. He unties his shoes and walks slowly out to collect the boat piece, and as soon as he flips it over, he inadvertently flips the charred corpse of gasoline suicide girl at himself. At night, we see him using a syringe to withdraw sodium cyanide, which he then drops into a loaded cylinder of hollow points. Next, he lights a match and melts a candle to seal the cyanide into each bullet. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a protagonist add poison to his bullets by hand? Oh, yeah. That does sound familiar. It's a ways back. Last season. He was going to use them to kill people. Po he was going to use his poisonous bullets to kill people. <laughs> you know, regular bullets do the same thing. <laughs> He's a killer. He kills. He is kill. the... Kill. The exterminator? The exterminator. <laughs> deputy Hendricks finds Brody in his office, and even though Brody covers the bullets with a rag, the deputy seems suspicious of whatever he's doing. Hendricks starts moving toward the desk to uncover the bullets, until Brody tries to distract him by pointing to the dive camera and recommending he get the photos processed. Brody scoops up the bullets in a towel and rushes out the door to get home for dinner. He says he's expecting a long-distance call and to please forward it to his home, and Hendricks agrees. When Brody gets home, his sons are playing Pong against each other on the TV, and Mrs. Brody is on the phone with Richard Dreyfuss's Matt Hooper character from the first film. He's on the research vessel Aurora, presently in the Antarctic Ocean, and he won't be in radio range till next spring. Yeah, I gave him a call. In the first film, Hooper was preparing to set sail on the same Aurora when he was coerced into the Great White Hunt with Quentin Brody. The Aurora, what is that? It's a floating asylum for uh, shark uh, fanatics. Uh, pure research, 18 months at sea. Presumably, Brody called Hooper because he was desperate for someone to tell him he doesn't sound crazy, so he reached out to the only survivor from the last Sharkspedition. Alone together upstairs, Brody tells his wife about the body he found today, and she invites him to talk about it if he needs to. Do you want to talk about it? Just routine. Okay. 
Brody tells Michael that he got him a job on the beach that will last the rest of summer vacation. He tells him he's grounded from sailing, but for some reason doesn't explain why. I suspect because he secretly wants his son to be eaten by sharks. We cut to the next day where a couple, completely buried in the sand, play footsie with their exposed toes. The water is crowded with beachgoers, none of whom have been warned by Brody in any way. Yet. We get a bunch of inserts of girls' butts walking on the beach. We follow a kid flying a kite as he goes past a shark watchtower where we find Chief Brody keeping an eye on the water. Elsewhere on the beach, Mayor Larry Vaughn and developer Peterson are leading a tour group to show off the beautiful beach that neighbors their prospective condo complex. So are shark towers actually a thing? Yes, they are. And we see a photograph of this exact shark tower in the first film when he's flipping through evidence of shark attacks in the past. Apparently this whole like shark fin, dorsal fin sticking out of the water while they swim isn't really a thing. That That's why you need to, to be do. higher than the water so you can see the shape in the water. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So you're going up really high so you can see down into the water because the, yeah, the Cuz otherwise you would just you right, you the the fin would rarely be above water and yeah. you wouldn't be able to see it anyway because it's not a it's not a glassy lake. It's yeah. waves. Mrs. Brody mentions how lovely the beaches are at sunset, and as she sweeps her arm across the horizon, she notices her husband watching for sharks and pauses mid-sentence, either because she thinks he's going crazy or because she knows he's not. Well, he must be up there often. Right. Because he you had would think, it built. Yeah. Mayor Vaughn notices Mike painting the outer walls of the beach restrooms and asks if he's seen his dad. Mike points to his dad in the tower, and Larry is immediately pissed off, even though he didn't notice Brody himself, and the investors might not have either if he didn't just draw so much attention to it. Unfortunately, Vaughn and Peterson spend a long time looking up and talking about Brody until a young girl and her mother ask what he's even doing up there, though the girl seems to know. It's a shark tower. I saw one in Florida. He's looking for sharks. Technically, that's true, because this was shot in Florida. So she saw that one, is what she's telling us. (laughs) Just as Peterson and the mayor start leading their investors back to the van to leave the beach, Brody spots a huge shape in the water. He inspects it with binoculars and makes a determination that this might be the shark responsible for the recent deaths. He rings a bell and shouts to the swimmers to get out of the water. The investors are still within earshot and shocked by Brody's announcement. He climbs down the tower as fast as he can and runs straight toward the shape with a gun in his hand. Everyone's freaking out more about the gun than the shark because he still hasn't actually mentioned a shark. He just told people to get out of the water for no specific reason. As he gets to the edge of the water, Brody starts firing his service weapon into the sea, right past beachgoers who haven't fully evacuated the waves. Do you guys recall the last time our protagonist declared war on the sea? No. Caligula. Ah. It's a while ago. Chief Brody is quickly out of bullets and everyone runs screaming. An observant lifeguard nearby points out that Brody has mistaken a school of fish for his shark. Just bluefish! Bluefish! Chief, it's a school of bluefish! It's just bluefish! We see a flock of seagulls swooping down to grab the bluefish out of the water. Oh no. And then presumably drop dead mid-flight after consuming bluefish tainted with cyanide bullets. Brody is immediately embarrassed and Ellen makes a move to comfort him, but Peterson holds her back to avoid tainting their reputation together. Brody assures the beachgoers that he was mistaken, it's okay to return to the water, and then he kneels to collect the shells of the bullets he fired, and his son Sean helps him dig them out of the sand. Yeah, don't touch the cyanide lace bullets, kid. Yeah, kid, leave those there. (laughs) I wanted him to tell his son. They taste funny. (laughs) You know, if you hold these shells to your ear, you can hear the ocean, because it's right fucking there. (laughs) Did anybody declare war on the ocean in Clash of the Titans? Oh my god, maybe. (laughs) Possibly. 
We cut to Brody's office and he stares across his desk at the Amity Man of the Year trophy he was awarded in 1975. His phone rings and he doesn't answer, but it is forwarded to his office again. It's Fogarty and he wants to show Brody the pictures from the dive cam. Based on his reaction, Brody has completely forgotten about the pictures and literally ordered them developed as a distraction and not because he thought they'd be helpful. In the first few pictures, Brody can see the divers and the orca on the ocean floor. Fogarty turns off the lights and processes the last few prints. A picture slowly develops and the camera zooms in to Brody's face as he recognizes an extreme close-up of a shark's eye. He throws all the prints in an envelope and races down to Amity Town Hall. He wants to make a statement to the selectman and mayor. Peterson is surprised to see him here. Well, speak of the devil. Do you recall the last time we discovered a... Evidence? Evidence through, yeah, a camera. <laughs> Great Muppet caper? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brody passes the photo of the shark's eye around, but nobody sitting at the table seems to recognize it for what it is. That's a shark. Look at the outline. Look at the mouth, the eyes. Is that what it is? Sorry, I just don't see it. Neither do I. It's nothing. Fuck you guys. It's very clearly a shark. <laughs> There's one old man just... Seaweed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Harry. It's seaweed. You got, you got something on the lens? There's a shark on the lens. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have taken it down to a goddamn fisherman yeah and said what's this what's this look like to you yeah for some reason brody needs to remind the group that he's dealt with a shark like this in person but they can't see past what it would cost them to close the beaches and take the threat seriously mayor vaughn asks brody to have a seat so they can deliberate privately in the mayor's office in a deleted scene we actually see that mayor vaughn is the only person who votes in favor of brody keeping his job which i feel like is a great character building moment that yeah. we don't get in the film i feel like he should get some tiny ounce of redemption in this whole story. Yeah. We hard cut to an arcade where the nerdy guys are playing a death race pinball machine. For some reason, this shot is flopped left to right, so the words on the game and the characters' shirts are displayed backwards. The camera pans across the room to show all the teenagers we've come to know so far, and finally tilts down to reveal that we're looking at a mirror over a booth where Ed and Tina are drinking beers with their arms interlocked. Larry Jr. asks the group if they'd like to sail out to the lighthouse tomorrow and do some drinking. My dad left a couple of cases of beer in the garage. Is it still there? Well, it's kind of vacationing on my boat. <laughs> the whole group start exchanging information to meet up and hang out tomorrow, except for Michael, who will probably be working. Jackie, the cute cousin, finally sits down next to him at the bar and admits that she wishes he would come. He doesn't think it's possible. I'm beached. I'm grounded. My dad won't let me take my boat out. Do you always do what your parents tell you to? No. Good, then I'll be at the dock at eight. When Chief Brody gets home at night, he seems intoxicated as he meanders up to the front door. On his porch, he has a flower pot sitting atop a yellow barrel, a reference to the barrels used in the first film to slow the shark down and keep track of it from above water. I'm sure this is one of the actual barrels. Probably, because they swam ashore on them. Yeah. Inside, he finds Deputy Hendricks sitting on the couch with his wife, Brody pulls the old-fashioned take-off-my-badge-and-pin-it-to-you maneuver that legally makes Hendricks the new chief of police around these parts. Brody pours everyone shots of whiskey and sings a bit of Hail to the Chief, giving the impression that Brody has already had a few drinks on his way here. Hendricks apologizes for all that's happened, and Ellen walks him to the door. Brody admits he's a little disoriented because he's never been fired, at least not since he was a teenager. For the first time, Brody starts to question whether they're right, and he's no longer the man for the job. The next morning, Brody is sleeping off a hangover when we hear a clattering downstairs. Mike's trying to sneak out discreetly, but he's caught by his younger brother, Sean, who asks if he can come along. When Mike says no, Sean threatens to wake their parents, securing himself a spot on the boat. I want to go with you. Shh. 
Michael. They leave together. On the docks, Michael is being annoyed by Sean again and pawns his brother off on Marge's boat. Jackie joins Andy and Michael on Mike's boat, and one of the nerdy guys, Timmy, finally works up the courage to invite Brooke on his. She is quick to accept, and he's amazed. For whatever reason, Larry Jr. and his buddy seemed to think that Jackie would be riding with them. Hey, I thought you said she was coming with us. Well, obviously, she's not. You want to talk about it? You want to swim home? On their way out to the lighthouse, the kids all blow past a large dive team getting ready for training. They say they're looking for lobster, and Jackie orders hers with extra butter. One member of the team actually finds a lobster fairly quickly, but can't get a grip on it before it swims away. Do you know that lobsters don't age? Is that true? It's true. It's yeah. really a bizarre thing. They just get hotter. bigger. Yet yeah, hotter? What? Yeah, every year. <laughs> no, they just keep growing. Like they don't they don't have like cell deterioration like like most animals do. So they they're researching them in terms of trying to you know, reduce the effects of aging, but they either they either die from predators or accidents, I suppose. They, but they don't they don't die of old age. <laughs> What kind of accidents are they? <laughs> lobster, lobster accidents, you know? Like two lobsters crash into each other fast <laughs> enough. <laughs> it just has to be eating. They're, they can't cause an accident even. They don't have things. I think you're dismissing lobster murder entirely. <laughs> <laughs> We're missing a whole genre of lobster death. Coming over a ridge, one of the divers is suddenly face to face with the burnt head of a great white, and he spits out his mouthpiece and races for the surface. He's either in shock from the attack or suffering from the bends as a result of surfacing too quickly. But as they load him into the boat, we see a shark fin pop out of the water briefly before disappearing into the waves pointed in the direction of all the teenager sailboats en route to the lighthouse. The classic Jaws theme scores the chase, and we cut back to the Brody household. Brody and Ellen discuss their plans for the day. Helen considers quitting her job, but Brody tells her to keep it because money might be tight soon. He points out that Michael's already up and out of the house this morning. He's making out early these days. Must be a morning man. Like his father. Their babysitter shows up with groceries to stock the pantry, and Ellen explains that Michael is out, but Sean is sleeping. Brody mentions that they might need the services of her brother, the handyman, and she corrects that it's her cousin. Ask him if he can use an apprentice. At first I thought he was looking for more work for Michael, but then I realized no. he needs a job <laughs> himself now. <laughs> Helen is disturbed to find a six-pack of beer cans in the yard beside the Amity police truck. They carpool to town. Ed and Tina have sailed off on a boat called Tina's Joy out of sight of the other boats for a little privacy. Ed tells her he's sure they can think of something to do to pass the time until their friends catch up. Tina asks for some blankets if Ed is suggesting sex because the bruises on her butt have been drawing questions from her mother. Maybe stop showering with your mom. <laughs> That's weird. As Ed digs for a blanket, a shark approaches their boat and crashes into the side, sending Ed overboard. A shark? A shark. <laughs> the shark. Our shark. <laughs> the shark proceeds to push the boat away from Ed so that he has a distance to swim to it. Tina spots a dorsal fin in the water and screams to her boyfriend to swim faster. Before he can make it back to the boat, the shark has him and jerks him around in the water in the same style as the first kill of this franchise when young Chrissy went skinny dipping at night. The shark drags Ed straight up to the side of the boat and crashes him hard into the wood. <laughs> He gets his arms up over the side and tries desperately to pull himself in with no help from Tina. Oh who, my God, that was driving me crazy. <laughs> grab his arms! I, yes, I am yelling at the TV at this point yeah. to help him. She seems paralyzed in shock. The shark tears Ed away with such force that a big piece of the wooden boat breaks off in his hands and he disappears into the bloodied water. 
Tina is still in shock and whispers to an invisible guardian to save her. I just like to think from the shark's point of view, it's like, damn it, that's the wrong kid. <laughs> because why does this it not... This does not taste like Brody. Yeah, it's like, why does it not continue to attack? What? Why does it choose now to, I'm going to go attack another set of boats? Well, you can only eat one sandwich per hour. <laughs> that's what I always say. That sounds say. like a challenge. <laughs> Back on shore, we see an ambulance racing through town, and the Brodies decide to follow it out of curiosity. It eventually stops on the beach where a group of EMTs work to resuscitate the man who surfaced too quickly from the dive team. He suffered an embolism, and one of his fellow divers mentioned something spooked him down there. Hendrix mentions offhand that this... It was the lobster murders. Oh, that's what it was. He saw a brutal lobster hanging. <laughs> Hendrix mentions offhand that this diving team were out this morning when Mike and his friends left for the lighthouse, and Brody and Ellen freak out. Apparently, they thought he left early to do extra work and not to take out the boat that he's been begging to take out all summer. Hendrix follows the Brodies to a police boat on the dock, and when he can't convince them off of it, he offers to captain the vessel since they are incapable. Oh, shit! Chief, go on up to the bow. You're doing all that wrong. Go ahead, untie the bow line. What the hell? They can't fire both of us, right? Somebody's got to be in charge. Brody tells Hendrix to head straight for the lighthouse. But also, Brody is terrible at his job of undoing lines because they d he doesn't undo the the stern line and yeah. it rips the cleat right off the pier. Yeah. Brody radios a nearby helicopter and asks him to intercept the kids sailing to the lighthouse and send them back to port. Unfortunately, he neglects to mention that there's a shark chasing them, probably. Yeah, he hasn't told anyone except the council. Yeah. Not even his wife. Right. If they're close enough to the lighthouse, wouldn't it be safer to encourage them to make landfall there and wait out the whole shark sitch? The police boat comes across Tina's Joy first, bobbing alone in the water. There are no visible passengers as they approach, even when the camera angle is pointed under the deck of the small boat. Brody hops on board to investigate, and after a moment he can hear a girl crying. Tina is here hiding under the deck when he lifts her out to ask what happened. <laughs> Brody spots another passing yacht and honks a horn to get its attention. He tells Hendrix, Ellen, and Tina that they will return to port with this new boat and he will move forward to find the kids. One of the nerdy kids, Doug, is pumping a leak out of his boat when part of it ruptures and his friends laugh. The same boat is tossed on its side by a collision with the shark and Doug swims to Mike's boat to escape it. Jackie is completely flipping out and Mike cracks his head on the boom before the shark flips their boat over into the water. For some reason, the rest of the teenagers either tip their boats without the shark's help or crash them full speed into each other. Yeah, the it, no one apparently is paying attention at all. Yeah. But that would also imply that just before the shark attacked, they were all Pointed heading... at each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the chaos, Mike was thrown overboard and another pair of kids have to loop around to snag him out of the water. What follows is probably the coolest shot of this movie as the shark pops up beside the boat with its mouth wide open just as they pull Michael's body clear of its jaws. Yeah, but not like... Without, like, dropping him, like, three times. Yeah. Or, like, trying to drag him yeah. out. And he's Everybody's too heavy. Everybody's very and, heavy like, in this universe. Oh, God. Like, that. I feel like the first movie. So, just just so that the, the audience knows. I know you yeah. two know. But I had never seen Jaws up until this came up. And I had to watch Jaws. Because, obviously, I wouldn't know what was yeah. happening in Jaws 2 if totally I didn't lost. watch the first what one. What is this fish? <laughs> <laughs> so, I watched it. And I, you know, like... Obviously, it was a good movie. Like, I, I had just mm -hmm. never seen it before. But it it had, a, even though obviously I knew 
as much about the movie as you can without watching it because it's so iconic. It was still really suspenseful. Yeah. This one, I think, didn't quite have that, except for, like, this moment was doing it for me. So yeah. when they aren't able to pull him out of the water, I'm like, shit, like, he might actually get eaten. Like, yeah. I wouldn't put it past this movie yeah. that the kid loses a leg. But this was probably the only moment in the entire film where I was legit kind of freaked out. Yeah, totally. Mike's brother Sean and Marge, the girl who brought him out, are now huddled together on their overturned boat as a fin drifts by. It seems to disappear into the distance for now. The guys who fished Mike out of the sea make a determination that he is badly injured and they should take him to a hospital. Couple things, though. They have what looks like the only functional boat here. Yeah. And they should at the very least have taken Sean with them. Right? So the brothers could stay together, if not more people, like the girl on the boat with Sean. Well, at least, I mean, he's obviously the youngest kid there. Yeah, like, it's going to be the least problem. He's not the, he's he's the least weight of everyone yeah. here. Right. I'm like, your your boat's not overturning. Take the kid at least. Yeah. Or at least get the two that are on the overturned boat yeah. onto a boat that's not overturned. Yeah, because you can add probably three or four passengers to this boat without it just flat out sinking on yeah. you. Instead, they leave with just Mike and promise to send help. The remaining boats use rope to bind themselves together and form a small floating island of boats. Brody reaches the lighthouse island and finds it abandoned. He radios the chopper again, who hasn't even taken off yet, and regrettably, in his hurry, Brody forgets again to mention any fucking killer sharks. And the helicopter get, tells him where he's going to meet him. Right. And, it's like, and I don't know where that is. Yeah, it's like, Brody, you've been on this island for at least three years. You should know where some things are. Yeah. He's utilizing weaponized incompetence as police chief. Yeah. It's <laughs> everybody else's problem. I that's don't how have he to keeps rising to power. <laughs> that's, that's how Mayor Vaughn got in position. Sometime later, the kids grow bored, bobbing in the water, waiting for rescue. Anybody want to play charades? No. The Harbor Patrol chopper pilot passes over Cable Junction in search of the kids and reports to Brody that he has found them. The teens all cheer, and the pilot informs them of his bizarre plan. He will leash them to the chopper and tow them to Cable Junction. Regrettably, they fail again to mention the killer shark. Just as he starts to lift off, the shark lunges out of the water to chomp on the floaty strut of his sea chopper, and very quickly the whole craft is wrenched on its side and breaking apart, with chunks of propeller thrown like shrapnel through the sails of the huddled boats of the teens. The rest of the chopper flips totally upside down in the water. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. to be fair, the bits of helicopter flying at you is also terrifying. And the sounds that it's <laughs> making as it's whipping through, yeah. and it's 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 really creepy. And it's like breaking the mast apart so that the sail is completely collapsing on the kids, too. They did shoot a scene of the shark eating this pilot under the water, but they cut it for ratings purposes. The shark starts twisting the huddled boats around in the water and then ramming them one at a time. It successfully tips Marge's boat, tossing Marge and Sean into the water. Marge is able to get Sean back on board, but before she can climb out of the water herself, the shark races up from behind and appears to swallow her whole, like she completely disappears into it. Peterson makes a half-assed attempt to apologize to Ellen for what's happened, but she doesn't want to hear it. Brody tries again to scramble the Harbor Patrol chopper on his radio, but he's no longer getting through. In his frustration, he starts punching the shit out of the radio, possibly as a reference to the destruction of the radio in the first film. A thunderstorm settles over the kids, still awaiting rescue. Sean is now alone on Marge's boat as the other teens shout at him to take the rope and pull their vessels tighter together. Sean, God damn it! God damn it, Sean, you listen to me, I'll break your ass, do you hear? The kid is clearly in shock, but eventually their cries break through to him, 
and they're able to pull him across to their boat. Sometime later, the kids are all fighting with each other as they wait impatiently to be rescued. Brody spots a boat passing the lighthouse island, and it's the two boys transporting Michael to shore for medical attention. Oh, thank Christ. He doesn't learn until this moment that his other son, Sean, has also been at sea this whole time. Sean's out there. What? You wanted to come. It's okay, wasn't it? Mike tries to apologize for bringing him, but Brody is too focused on putting a plan together for rescue. He orders Mike and friends to wait by the lighthouse for now where they're safe from the shark. The sailboat cluster, which has been coasting toward Cable Junction, is a bit off course now, and they might miss it, which would send them into open ocean. Well, from what it, what you've said before, it sounds like Cable Junction may have been off course. That's true. They make a futile effort to paddle their way to Cable Junction, but all they succeed in doing is drawing the attention of the shark. The boats get caught on the rocks around Cable Junction, and it seems like if the water's that shallow, it shouldn't be too dangerous to swim to the island from here. Well... Like, how much space could there possibly be in the water there? Like, the shark's not going to swim over rocks to get you. Eh, it might. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you assume that that mast is at least 15 feet tall, yeah, that's 15 feet of water. Maybe. It fit a shark in there. It fit a shark in there? <laughs> <laughs> how many sharks you fit in that bad boy? Top to bottom, too. <laughs> As the teen boys continue arguing, a girl gets their attention to point out the diesel rumbling of an approaching ship. Brody has finally reached the kids and everyone breathes another premature sigh of relief. He tries to pull up close enough for the kids to climb aboard, but is thrown off balance by a quick jab from the shark. Brody's boat is sent full speed into Cable Junction and crashes. Brody recovers and tosses the kids a rope so that he can pull their multi-boat raft to shore with his winch. The winch catches on an underwater cable just as the shark tears through the bottom of the kids' makeshift raft. Several of the teens are launched into the water and make a mad scramble for Cable Junction. Jackie, Michael's date, is completely losing her shit. He really dodged a bullet with this one. One of the girls, Lucy, is floating in the water when the shark approaches, but she manages to dodge at the last second. As it passes her by, it scrapes its jagged skin along her belly, causing a huge bruise. Apparently they have skin like sandpaper. When Brody finally notices he has dragged up the power cable to the island, he recalls Elkin's advice about sharks being attracted to rhythmic sounds. He starts climbing down the cable to a rubber inflatable raft in the water, just as the shark reappears. When he goes after Sean and Jackie, Brody starts swatting the cable with one of the raft's oars to draw the shark's attention. It works, and the shark turns tail for Brody. For a moment, it appears to be leaving, until Brody slaps the cable more to lure it back. At the last possible second, just before the shark intends to chow down on Chief Brody, or former Chief Brody, he shoves the cable forward into its jaws and shouts, Open the line! Open the, line! the shark chomps down on the cable and explodes in a flash of sparks and flame. Everyone watches it smoldering on the line and comes to terms with the fact that they're safe and it's over. Yeah, but I feel like I don't want to be that close to the animal and Electrical the water yeah. that it's sitting in For when sure. there's going to be an electrocution happening. He's in a rubber raft. He's fine. Yeah, <laughs> but they're not all <laughs> like a multi-ton shark barreling towards him it, as well. That some is of these about kids are to in the be water. electrocuted. <laughs> yeah. Some of the kids cry, some laugh with joy, some are still in shock. We get some fun inserts of flames pouring out of the shark's eye sockets and mouth as it crackles. Brody paddles the rubber raft to the kids and puts a jacket on Jackie and collects his youngest son. And you. They made me go with him. <laughs> sure they did. 
The credits roll over Brody paddling Jackie and Sean to safety, and the film ends there. No resolution on shore, no reunion with mom, the nope. end. No, 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 does he get his job back? I nope. assume yes. I mean, uh, the fact that he's still the chief of police in the second film means that they reward you if you kill the shark. Yeah. Even if you caused deaths on the way to that. You get reelected for sure by killing a shark. Yeah. He's also running unopposed. <laughs> Who the fuck wants to be sheriff here? No, thank you. Not with all the sharks. <laughs> let's let's talk about some differences between the film Jaws 2 and the novelization of Jaws 2. In addition to the implication that this shark was impregnated by the shark from the first film, it is also the mother of the shark from the fourth film, according to that film's novelization. What happened to the third film? I don't know what happened to the third film. There's no shark in the third film. What? (laughs) It's like Jason 5. Or Jason (laughs) 1. That's true. Yeah. Turns out it's the shark's mom the whole time. (laughs) What? That's just a shark. That's just another shark. (laughs) Sharks don't age either. Based on the kids' ages, this should be at least five years later. Ignoring that, and assuming that this is still the present, three years have passed. The gestational period of a great white tops out at 1.5 years, so there's almost no way that this shark would still be pregnant from the first Jaws, unless they fucked (laughs) post-explosion. Like our last one-time John Hancock film, Wolfen, parts of the novel are told from the animal's perspective. The hotel being opened by Mr. Peterson in the book is actually a hotel and casino. So it's actually going to make much more money for the island. In place of the kids cruising on sailboats, Michael is secretly getting scuba certified, despite his father's fears, hence the whole scuba class moment in this film. That was supposed to be Michael and his friends training. Because usually these novelizations are based on early drafts of the script, and then they can't update it when the script changes. The diver who gets himself the bends is actually Mike's friend Andy in the book. The town pharmacist intentionally destroys Brody's dive photo evidence to bury proof of the sharks because he doesn't want to lose business over it. The book also reintroduces the mafia element from Benchley's original novel, but missing from both films. Well, that goes in line with the casino, I suppose. Yeah. Like getting a, like an Atlantic City kind of vibe. Exactly. It's worth mentioning that in Benchley's first book, Mayor Vaughn isn't just a sociopath. He owes a shit ton of money to the mob, and if Brody cries shark and the town goes under financially, Vaughn is basically a dead man. As a result, the Mafia put pressure on Vaughn and Brody to sweep the shark problem under the rug, even sending a man to the Brody home to murder Sean's cat right in front of the kid with his bare hands. A mobster just picks up his cat and then twists his head until it dies and then throws it in the yard. Right in front of the kid. I mean, I feel like it's definitely more redeeming for the mayor, of course. But, oh, that, that gets dark. Yeah. There's also an odd subplot in the Jaws 2 novelization about Brody bringing home an injured seal. I kind of would have liked that. Something for the kids to do because it turns out the kids take care of the seal at home. Yeah, and then like what a great little like friend. Like 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 it's just like the seal now is this part of. But then later when they release it, the seal ends up luring the shark toward the kids because it's trying (laughs) to get to the kids. That's what happens in that. Oh really? Oh my god, that's great. I like that. Um, oh, I want, I'd rather have the seal, like, warn them. Like, he's, they're a little friends. Like, there's a shark coming. <laughs> That's the dolphin thing more than the <laughs> yeah. seal thing. Seals are just like, hey, pet me or die. And dolphins are a part of the third one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I can't remember. I think he had seals in 2010, Roy Scheider's character. Maybe. I, I think. Or that, dolphins. I can't remember if he if it was dolphins or seals. I he think it's some, dolphins. He had some kind of aquatic animal, which was funny because then he goes on to have he has a, a talking dolphin, dolphin in, in Sequest. Yeah, that is weird. 
Maybe I'm just thinking of that, and maybe it is seals. The water skiing scene in the book is very different, and it seems much more fun. The person steering the boat notices the shark first, and the skier thinks they're just being funny by swerving the boat around, until she sees a fin as tall as her rising from the water beside her. As far as sequels go, before what became Jaws 3, producers Brown and Zanuck had suggested the franchise could not expect to continue to make money unless they took things in a new direction, and courted director Joe Dante to helm what at one point was called Jaws 3 People Zero, an official sequel and straight parody of the Jaws franchise about the cast and crew of a fictional Jaws sequel centered around an alien shark. Supposedly, the opening scene featured Jaws author Peter Benchley being eaten by a shark in his backyard swimming pool. I would have loved to have seen this. Yeah. I feel like that would have really jumped the shark. I think that would have been better than Jaws 3D. (laughs) When that never came to be, for perhaps obvious reasons, the next installment was 1983's Jaws 3D, starring Dennis Quaid and Leah Thompson, and released, as the title would have you believe, in 3D. The series ends canonically with Jaws The Revenge in 1987, featuring the return of Lorraine Gary's widowed Ellen Brody, courted in the film by Michael Caine. Insanely, the fourth film starts with the shark attacking and killing Sean Brody while he works in the Amity Harbor at night. That's like the opening scene of the movie. You kill Sean, the baby kid? He had it coming. That's true. (laughs) Too many close calls. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, and I guess... Because it's weird though, because I, I have to, and I haven't watched Jaws three, or at least I didn't pay attention to what Dennis Quaid's official job was. Yeah, at the park because it takes place at a Sea World, mm. um, which I think is a, I think it's a great set piece. I and it's not like a Sea World lookalike; it's Sea World. Yeah, it's a Sea World, um, but it just seems like he's like a a manager of a of a group of employees. Right, I do think he's a marine biologist. Though. Okay, yeah, yeah, because in the fourth one, he's straight up a marine biologist with Mario Van Peebles. Yeah, and they're they're always out at sea, like, tagging yeah. and releasing. Yeah, they're tagging and releasing s- snails. And right. that's when the shark comes in and they get really excited because they want to, like... Tag that. Yeah. And also features a live-action performance from Judy Varsi. In the fourth one? In the fourth one, That's yeah. the girl on the banana boat? Yeah. Like, and this is, oh my gosh, there she is. Yeah. You never, I never see her, I only hear her. Wow. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, Melvin Van Peebles also, since Mario is in it, like yeah. Melvin Van Peebles also has a small part in it. That's fun. But that movie ends like with everyone making it. Like, yeah, it's it's like comically yeah. happy at the end of it. It almost seems like the whole point is supposed to be, oh, see, none of these people survived. <laughs> that, that's the, you're watching a fantasy ending. All four films in the canon series include the characters of Michael and Sean Brody, but none of the major cast from Jaws 3D appear in any of the other films. There's also a half-sequel called Cruel Jaws, released in 1995, that takes advantage of Italy's sequelize whatever you feel like laws <laughs> with a sort of mashup of all four Jaws films. We have familiar lines from Jaws 1. Well, this is not a boat accident. It wasn't any propeller. Well, what do you think? In my opinion, it wasn't a speedboat propeller. You yell shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Before it gets out, that a shark tore a driver to bits. Hey, you can kiss the tourist season. It's really a miracle of evolution. All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks. And that's all. And all they really know how to do is, is swim, eat, and make baby sharks. And that's all. References to this film. She got tits like a sparrow. 
<laughs> Did you see that? A super babe. She tits on her like watermelon. <laughs> we have a lot of deaths in these waters that never turn up. Are they all shark victims? Maybe they are. Why, hell, you know how many people drowned in accidents? Are you gonna blame them all on sharks, too? Yeah, maybe. Do you always do what your parents tell you to? No. Good, then I'll be at the dock at 8. Do you always do what your daddy tells you to? Uh, no. Well then, I'll see you at the aquarium at 8. Entire scenes from Jaws 3D. My boots. Kick them off, cowboy. Wait a minute, my shoes! Take them off! Attention, you in the water. You are trespassing on SeaWorld property. Come out of the water with your hands raised high above your head. I'm okay. My brother works here. Uh, I'm Kelly Ambukowski from the ski team. You turkeys have any ID? Wait a minute. Action Bay Police! Don't you dirty little devils know you're polluting the ocean doing that? I'm Ronnie Lewis. Samuel Lewis's son. Is it me or are you in the shit up to your neck? <laughs> Wait a minute. And even a bit of four. Doctors say she should be all right. She's in shock. Doctor said it was only momentary shock. And that's the whole franchise as it stands so far. I think uh, Spielberg has forbidden its rebooting. So mm. at at the worst, there would be more sequels to follow the fourth film, but. Um, I don't expect that to happen anytime soon. Well, we got the Meg, so... Right. Yeah, there are spiritual sequels. And and really, you can do any kind of a shark movie you want and call it whatever you want. But eventually, they're going to want to use that Jaws brand name again. And uh, they did do a TV movie adaptation of another Peter Benchley, uh, which which I believe was a hybrid man shark. Right. I remember watching that. Half man, half shark? Yep. His name's Mark. <laughs> what do you guys think thumbs up thumbs down is a thumbs up for me i'll give it a thumbs up yeah i i honestly i i think it's a fine sequel you know it it doesn't doesn't quite live up to the first one but uh i don't feel it does it any harm no and i i do i do get the impression that it was made in a rush because things like the the dive team going down seemed completely out of place and i was like what is this? Like, we didn't hint at this before. This doesn't really pay off later. I don't understand why this is suddenly happening. Um, and we don't know any of those characters' names or, like, who this guy is that got the bends when he went down. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it, it feels like something that was rewritten several times very quickly to try and hit a release date. But it still works really well. I do wish that the mayor had more of a redemptive arc in this film. Mm-hmm. I feel like that would be fair. And then you introduce this new shitty Peterson guy. Um, and maybe even, like, the mayor saves the day on the, you know the industrial side by shutting down whatever thing this guy was planning that was going to ruin the area or make things worse somehow. I, I think what my, one of my issues with this movie is like the first one, the shark like kills one person one day, kills another person another day. The shark just seems to be eating multiple people per day. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I don't, Hey, don't insult the pregnant woman for being hungry. <laughs> She's eating for two. Yeah. <laughs> She's eating for Jaws too. <laughs> uh, but uh, other than that, like, cause it, it seems the the shark in this one seems more aggressive. Like it, it yeah. like it's it's seeking out to cause harm. Where the first shark just was like, it's just a big shark. 
out in the water. Maybe it's a little bit smarter because it's a little bit bigger and a little bit older. Yeah. But it, it just seems like it, it's not really seeking out until they are hunting it. Yeah. And that's when it feels like it needs to retaliate. And the, the kills in the first film feel more like what it what a real shark would do which is bite a person and kill it i mean maybe maybe not even mm-hmm. like sharks typically like real life sharks which jaws set kind of a bad reputation for avoid people on purpose they don't like the taste of people they they like the taste of seals because they're fatty and humans are too bony and stringy and um, i agree and uh I, th- I think that in the first film the shark acts the way that we expect a shark to act because of movies like that but in in this film the shark seems to be like hitting the button on a rube goldberg machine that kills people revenge. it's yeah. like a final destination <laughs> shark that causes people to set themselves on fire and explode <laughs> or crash their helicopters and stuff like that it's a little different it's not just biting people every time yeah but in the uh the prologue to the jaws audiobook it has a whole bit from benchley talking about how he feels bad about um the reputation that he gave sharks in popular culture and about how he's worked his entire life since then in like various marine biology adjacent fields and that he's done a lot of work for conservation and to spread the word that sharks are actually kind creatures and they're endangered and um we're much more of a risk to them than they are to us um i just thought that was interesting and worth bringing up especially with the 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 catching and just chopping off the fins and then talking tossing the whole shark back into the water yeah that that whole thing is messed up i mean i i'm fine if like if you were fishing for shark and you intend to eat the shark itself, shark steaks and all that, it's like, okay, that's one thing. But just cutting the fins off and then just throwing the rest of the un- living shark back in the water where it can't do anything anyway. Yeah. that's They just drown. Oh, also one thing I love about the fourth one too. Because <laughs> I, I really do have an affection because of how bad it is. But it's uh, <laughs> Lorraine Gary's character can sense the shark in the water. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the psychic connection goes both yeah, ways. Yeah, she she can she knows where the sh- when the shark is near or where like there's just a scene where she's like water just touches her feet while she's by the water and she just goes like like dead zone yeah. like it's like she can sense that it's near. Yeah, she's basically Moana. Yeah, yeah, we all gave it thumbs up, right? Um, yeah, it's good. The third film is worthless. I w- it would have been fine to do it as uh, a parody film. I think I I would enjoy watching that more than what Jaws 3 became. But maybe that's mostly because I don't have a 3D Blu-ray player or a 3D yeah. Blu-ray of the movie, so it's hard to watch because the 2D pass is literally just a blurry mess. Yeah, it's very blurry. Every shot is 3D. And also the 3D effects weren't working right, so they did a lot of fake stuff in post, like that ridiculous Jaws clip where the the shark crashes into the window that I'm sure everybody's yeah. seen on YouTube, where they shot it with a model breaking through glass, but they didn't like the way it looked, so they just comped a 2D photo of a shark crashing into the window it looks mm. like trash it's awful but you're saying there's no 2d version of this movie out there there's there's a 2d scan of the 3d movie so it's just blurry around the edges it's basically only focused right in the middle of frame even when they played it when i was a kid on comedy central mm-hmm. or tcm it would look like that huh. there's there's because so that's of the, what it looks like even if you just scan one eye well i don't think that it was shot in a way that you can scan one eye. I think it was shot in a red-blue way where both images were captured on the same negative. Oh. And so there's not a way to separate them easily. I don't know. 
I don't know I all the ins I didn't and know outs. that was a, I didn't know that that was a thing like a single exposure. With I'm both just eyes. guessing because no 2D version of this film exists in in the in the current marketplace. Uh, maybe there is some way that they could sell one eye, but the way that it's marketed right now, it's it's always really blurry and weird. Our director here was Jeno Schwark. He has mostly TV work until a run of 19 episodes of Night Gallery and a Columbo alongside previous Jaws director Steven Spielberg, which he followed up with a Michael Crichton adaptation, Extreme Close-Up. After that, he directed a movie called Bug that I need to see. An earthquake releases a strain of mutant cockroaches with the ability to start fires, starring Bradford Dillman. Hmm. Yes, please. We've already reviewed Schwark's next film, Somewhere in Time, and he's back later with Supergirl and yeah. Santa Claus the movie. And then back to TV for every major show from Ally McBeal to Heroes to Bones to most recently Grey's Anatomy. Universal made him the deal for Somewhere in Time because of his performance with this film and the fact that it was a huge box office performer for the year. Characters came from Peter Benchley. He plays an interviewer in Jaws and a mate in The Deep. He also wrote the novel and screenplay for The Deep and the novel and screenplay for The Island. He somehow has a novel credit on Cruel Jaws, so I guess it's sort of connected to the series by credits. I don't know why they would give him a credit if he clearly wouldn't approve of that film. The screenwriter credited here is Carl Gottlieb. He wrote a lot of comedy for television, The Smothers Brothers and Dean Martin. He has writing credits on Jaws, Jaws 2, Jaws 3D, The Jerk, Caveman, and Dr. Detroit. The other writer, Howard Sackler, whose draft was the dreary one that was kind of thrown away, he wrote Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss for director Stanley Kubrick. The music here is from John Williams. He's a five-time Oscar-winning composer. Jaws was one of his best known, other than maybe Star Wars or Indiana Jones. We've heard him so far in Empire, Superman 2, and Raiders. He's back this season for Taps and Heartbeeps. <laughs> they got John Williams for Heartbeeps? Sure. Good. Good. He's just like last minute Christmas shopping. F fuck, I got to do another movie. Heartbeats. Done. Cinematographer Michael C. Butler. I was unable to confirm whether Michael is related to Bill Butler, the DP of the first Jaws. Michael started his career as a DP on Charlie Varick. Later, he lit Harry and Tonto, Wanda Nevada. And on the show so far, we've seen his work on A Small Circle of Friends, Smokey and the Bandit 2, and The Cannonball Run. And later, Megaforce. Editor Steve Potter, he cut The Idolmaker, Dances with Wolves, and a bunch of Wonder Years and Party of Five. Another editor, Arthur Schmidt, this was his second editing credit. We've seen his work on Coal Miner's Daughter and The Widowmaker. He later cuts Ruthless People, The Back to the Future trilogy, The Rocketeer, Death Becomes Her, Last of the Mohicans, Adam's Family Values, Forrest Gump, Contact, and The Pirates of the Caribbean. So there's a lot of Zemeckis in there, but other great people too and the third credited editor is neil travis who later cuts hot stuff die laughing the idol maker again nobody's perfect cujo outbreak stepmom and terminator 3 roy scheider played brody sheriff brody chief of police brody he was frank Legorn and clute we've seen him so far in the french connection and he returned for pseudo sequel the seven ups which lost a patreon poll to this film for a custom review offered generously by listener justin aylett Outside the Jaws franchise, Scheider appears in Marathon Man, Sorcerer, All That Jazz, Blue Thunder, and 2010 The Year We Make Contact. I think All That Jazz was also on the poll that lost to this film. Yeah. Scheider also made a couple appearances as himself on Family Guy. Lorraine Gary played Ellen Brody. She was the wife at the time of Universal head Sid Scheinberg. Jaws was her first feature, and she reprises that role here and in Jaws 4, in which she plays the central character. She was also Joan Douglas in 1941. 
Murray Hamilton played Mayor Vaughn, insanely he is still in office after playing the mayor in the first Jaws. He's Mr. Robinson in The Graduate, Alphonse Paquette in Anatomy of a Murder, J. Hugh Kilborn in The Drowning Pool, General Landers in Damnation Alley, Father Ryan in The Amityville Horror, Claude Crum in 1941. Last season we saw him as John Deach in Brubaker. He plays a lot of very similar characters mm-hmm. and stuff. I, I do like that line from, from Ghostbusters. Yeah. Andy Garcia is playing the mayor of New York yeah. as uh, Kristen Wiig is trying to warn him. Please, Mayor Bradley, you have to believe me. You're the only one that can do something. Don't, please don't be like the mayor in Jaws. And <laughs> <laughs> never compare me to the Jaws mayor. Never! All of Hamilton's scenes in this film were shot very quickly because his wife was undergoing a biopsy for cancer treatment at the time and he wanted to be with her. So they made a deal that they could shoot everything in like a couple days and got everybody together and knocked it out. Joseph Miscolo played Peterson. Dana Elkar was cast in this part first, and they even shot a bunch of scenes with him. And uh, after John Hancock was fired, they replaced him, which Miscolo was excited to get the job, but also sad to learn that when Schwark took over, that most of this character was rewritten to be a much smaller part of the film. Miscolo will be back later this season for Sharky's Machine, and then later he is Baby in Heat. That sounded wrong. He plays a character named Baby in the movie Heat. He's not a baby in heat. <laughs> He's likely best known for his soap opera appearances as Nicholas Von Buren on General Hospital, Massimo Marone the Fourth in The Bold and the Beautiful, and of course his two thousand four hundred and ninety-six appearances on Days of Our Lives Stefano! as Stefano Demera <laughs> or Dimera or Dimera. <laughs> Nobody just, knows. Just Stefano. <laughs> yeah. Jeffrey Kramer played Hendrix. He was Hendrix in Jaws 1. He's the motorist in Clue. We'll see him later this season as Graham in Halloween 2 and Party Butler Robot in Heartbeeps. <laughs> Did I say that <laughs> annoyed enough? Heartbeeps. That's what got me. <laughs> he was also a producer on The Practice in Allie McBeal. Colin Wilcox Paxton played Dr. Elkins. She's Myella Violet Ewell in To Kill a Mockingbird and Nurse Kramer in Catch-22. Anne Dusenberry played Tina. She's Stevie in Heartbeat and Valerie Duran in Cutter's Way. She's also married to composer Brad Fidel, best known for his score, to Terminator 2. She reunites with Roy Scheider in 1986 for The Men's Club. Barry Coe played Andrews. Who's Andrews? Probably another the character that Barry Coe played. Oh, yeah, <laughs> of course. Rodney Harrington in Peyton Place and Phylon in The 300 Spartans. So those are older titles. Must be an older guy. Susan French played Old Lady. That's, I think, the old lady on the porch who Makes sees sense. the boat explode. And she also played Older Elise in Somewhere in Time. So Jeannot Schwark brought her back <laughs> to give a watch to Christopher Reeve. What are you laughing about? <laughs> I thought you said, you know, Schwark brought her back. No. But then I realized you said, you know, Schwark brought her back. So, you know. You know. Okay. I'm going to say, you know, now. Every time. But only when I mean, you know, Schwark. What? Gary Springer is not Jerry Springer. He's Gary Springer. And he played Andy. He's Stevie in Dog Day Afternoon and Greenblatt in Small Circle of Friends. Donna Wilkes played Jackie. She was Allison Fails in Schizoid, the psychotic daughter of Klaus Kinski's psychiatrist character. She's Marion in Blood Song from screenwriter Lenny Luca Brazzi Montana. And she's also Angel in the first film of the Angel Trilogy. Gary Dubin played Ed. 
He has mostly voice work, including the voice of Toulouse in the Aristocats and the voice of the titular Jizzmaster in Jizzmaster and Jizzmaster Part 2, which uses the Arabic numeral 2. I'm sorry. John Duc- Jizzmaster? <laughs> I think he also directed it. It's a short. <laughs> it's a short. I hope it's short. <laughs> you hope it's short? Well, yeah. When we That's have the to- first time anyone's ever said that about a Jizzmaster. <laughs> I hope it's short. Dukakis... <laughs> John Dukakis played Polo. He, <laughs> he was Duke and King of the Mountain. He's also the adopted son of former Massachusetts governor and former presidential hopeful Michael Dukakis. He's also the half-brother of former congressman Jason Chaffetz. Mark Gilpin played Sean. He was Dalem, the alien kid in Earthbound. And young John Reed in The Legend of the Lone Rangers. Lone Rangers? <laughs> How do you pluralize Lone Ranger? <laughs> How can you pluralize the Lone Ranger? What's wrong with that? He has claimed that when they were floating on the bundle of boats, that they were circled by real hammerhead sharks and tried to make it clear to the camera crew who just gave them a big thumbs up, like, you're really selling this moment. Keith Gordon played Doug. We saw him last season in the Brian De Palma double feature of Home Movies and Dress to Kill playing essentially the same character in both films. Later, he stars in Christine and Back to School. In the 90s, he transitioned behind the camera, doing a lot of television directing on shows like House, The Killing, Dexter, The Leftovers, Better Call Saul, Fargo, and Homeland. Cindy Grover played Lucy. She was Caroline Schumacher in Network. Ben Marley played Patrick. He's the kid in Steel. He's John Young in Apollo 13. Billy Van Zant played Bob. He was a writer and producer on Martin, The Wayans Brothers, Yes Dear, and The Hughleys. He also played Randall Wright Ensign in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Is he related to Gus? Van Sant? Yeah. Uh, that's entirely possible. I wanted you to be like, no. <laughs> A different Gus <laughs> with the same last name as the guy we're talking about. <laughs> Most recently, he played Groucho Marx on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Gigi Vorgan played Brooke. Gigi Vorgan. Probably Gigi. Yeah, that makes more sense, right? Vorgan, though. <laughs> Fix that one. Gigi Vorgan played Brooke. She was Folg's daughter in Caveman. Christine Freeman was a water skier, probably the water skier who gets killed. Uh, she also did water ski stunts in Freaky Friday because she was a champion water skier. April Gilpin, who has the same last name as Mark Gilpin, who plays one of the Brody kids, played Renee. She was Bridget in Earthbound earlier this season, so I'm guessing yeah. that was her brother that was in that movie with her. Jim Wilson played Swimmer with Child. He was Uncle Bo in Return to Boggy Creek, the first of two unofficial sequels to the current 70s Patreon option, Legend of Boggy Creek, that has two unofficial sequels. Why would you make an unofficial sequel to a movie no one's ever heard of? <laughs> How much could the rights possibly cost? $10? He also played the killer in a Jekyll and Hyde film called The Man with Two Heads. Herb Muller played Phil Fogarty, that's the guy processing the photos. He was young Mr. Myrtle in The Sandlot. Fritzy Jane Courtney played Select Woman. She was Mrs. Taft in Jaws 1 and Jaws 4. She's, along with Lorraine Gary, she's the only person to have appeared in three of the four right. Jaws films. No one has been in four except for one guy, we'll get to him later. Alfred Wilde played Selectman 1. He was Bad Hat Harry in the first Jaws. Cyprian R. Doobie. <laughs> Dubay? Doob? Cyprian R. Doob. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Cyprian. He played Mr. Posner in Jaws 1, and he's back as the mayor in Jaws 4. So again, he's in three of the four films, but he's not in all four. Only one person holds that distinction, and that is Bruce, who plays the shark. 
He has an IMDb page with only four credits, and those are the four Jaws films. George Buck played Irate Letterbox Man, uncredited, not to be confused with George Buck Flower. He was also Birdie's father in Birdie and Nuke's dad in Bull Durham. Robin Eddins played Sunbather, uncredited. Robin previously appeared as a screaming swimmer in Jaws 1, and she's back as a church caroler in Jaws 4. And Michael Smith played an extra. He shows up later in The Alien Dead, which I'm sure we'll get a minisode eventually. And he also was a PA on Major League 2, Die Hard 3, and 12 Monkeys. Those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for Jaws 2. Thanks again to Justin Aylett for another incredibly generous contribution to the show. As a reminder, if there's any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us on Jaws 2, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever the hell you choose. I actually already know what our next movie's going to be, but I'm not going to spoil it for you here because it's a surprise by order of the person who requested it. Do I know what it is? Yes, you do. We're recording it on Friday. We leave oh. you now with a trailer for Jaws 2. <laughs> when the movie Jaws first opened, it created a sensation. And shark sightings increased by the thousands in all the vast and unknown depths of the ocean. How could there have been only one? a terrible tragedy here but today amity has a new hotel and the promise of a perfect summer now just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water the legend continues. Carrie! Chief Brody, can, can we go, please? I think we may have another shark problem. Are you serious? Roy Scheider. Lorraine Gary and Murray Hamilton. Look at this. That's a shark. Look, Brody, you started a panic on a public beach. Now, what if somebody decides to sue us? That's a shark. Did you ever stop to think about that? And I know what a shark looks like because I've seen one up close. About this one, because I don't intend to go through that hell again. Don't press it this time. Mike is out there. Over there. Oh God! 
my son and husband are still out there. Get me out! Get None of man's fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. The all-new Jaws 2. See it before you go back in the water.